a trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership, and the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there, and welcome to the show. I trust you're ready to engage in some wrong think, and I stand ready to indulge you in exactly that. Our program is brought to you by MonticelloCollege.org, HSLAmmo.com, as well as Pure-Light.com. These are marvelous sponsors, and they make it possible for me to do what I do on a daily basis, and I hope you'll take the time to visit their links, which I've provided in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. If you want to just drop them a note and tell them, hey, I heard Brian talking about you, heard, heard that you have a great product or a great service, they would love to hear that. They'd love it even more. If you actually need that product or service and you were to, uh, you know, do some business with them. So that's up to you. Anyhow, welcome to the show. Got a lot of great stuff to cover today. Things that will cause you to think, though not necessarily agree with me or the various uh, authors and commentators that I will share with you on this program. Got some great stuff, though. For instance, let's begin with this. Politics has a tendency to corrupt anything it touches. And I've made no bones about the fact that I'm extremely skeptical and not a very big fan of politics. And it's for, for that reason. It just it seems that people who are, are very decent, productive, kind, and, and thoughtful individuals in their day-to-day lives, when you bring politics into the conversation, for some of them, it, it causes them to transform into this one-dimensional caricature of themselves. How do I know this? Well, I've been there myself. I've been guilty of it. So, understanding that it tends to corrupt whatever it touches, you know, I'm, I'm not going to pretend that the, that's off limits for me, though. I mean, it, it can affect any well-intentioned person, including you or me, especially if we are considering running for office. Now, I love Jordan B. Peterson. I think he has a message for our time One of the questions he asks when it comes to politics is, what makes you think you won't be a tyrant if you were given the power? This is from an article from RT News. I saw this published earlier today on LewRockwell.com. And it says, a well-intentioned person who wants to change an unjust political system should keep in mind that it would be his or her personal responsibility not to be corrupted in the process. Provocative thinker Jordan Peterson told RT. The Canadian intellectual whose ideas made him an icon for conservatives and a villain for liberals spoke to RT's Going Underground program about his latest self-help book, Beyond Order, 12 More Rules for Life. By the way, one of those rules is to abandon ideology, which he stressed is especially important for people going into politics. So if you choose to go into politics, here's what Jordan B. Peterson says. He says, if you are going to move into the political realm, you should do what you can to get your own psyche in order. You want to make yourself into the sort of person who's going to be capable of using power wisely instead of using it in the manner you are decrying in current leaders. Doing so is not a simple thing. 
Casually adopting an ideology that may have nothing of you in it won't be of much use in that regard. He warned, those people who became tyrants when they were granted power, what makes you think they are so different from you? I'm going to step aside here and pause for just a moment. That's a super powerful question. Because it acknowledges that, you know, not everybody, not everybody in politics is a corrupted, you know, power-seeking opportunist. But I can tell you from personal experience, having known some very principled people who ended up in politics at various levels, the longer they are in that political system, the more they are tempted to believe that the system needs me. Nobody can do it like me. They come to think of themselves as... um, above human nature. And that's part of the danger, because that means they can start to justify, you know, abusing power because I'm special, but I'm different. I'm, I'm made from a finer clay, as uh, Frederick Bastiat put it. Now, the article says, Peterson is a strong advocate of people doing things to improve their personal lives before they take on big causes, and, and a critic of, he's a critic of revolutionary movements. He also opposes generalizations and reductionist views that boil down life's complexity to phenomena like class struggle or corruption of the elites. Some of his critics point out that such a stance is very convenient for those who want to protect a deeply flawed status quo from public pressure, and thus it serves those in power. Program host Afshin Ratansi challenged some of Peterson's beliefs, particularly his view of art being detached from the political sphere. He responded by saying that genuine art, by definition, transcends politics. He said, if an artist is genuinely possessed by the creative spirit, they cannot put what they are doing into words, not explicitly. They can't render it into a philosophy or an ideology. That's propaganda in my estimation. He explained there's certainly a revolutionary aspect to art, and it's easy to confuse it with revolutionary politics. But he says the two are not in the same category as far as I'm concerned. Now, the article also points out here that Picasso was an outspoken communist, for example, but that's not what people remember him for. Jordan Peterson says the feelings that Picasso expressed in the painting Guernica, which he made in response to the Franco government's bombing of a Basque town, can be empathized by a victim of any war, regardless of its political aspects. Peterson says anyone who's had a loved one hurt in a war, in a battle, in a bombing, could look at the anguish that's in that painting and see a reflection of what's happening in their own soul. You could sort war into justifiable and non-justifiable wars, and he says, I know there are tyrants and noble revolutionaries, but art speaks to the universals of human experience outside the political realm. Now, there is a video linked in this article, and I would strongly suggest maybe this would be worth your time. If, you know, I mean, some people, some people are are actual, you know, like uh, fanatics about uh, Jordan Peterson. Okay, he's got uh, he's got his groupies, but I think there are a lot of folks out there just looking for a voice of reason, somebody who is not uh, trying to deceive them or misinform them, and is is telling them, look, you want to save the world, you got to start by by making your bed, <clears throat> by getting yourself in order. Jordan Peterson is that guy. And the fact that that's considered a controversial message 
is more of an indictment of how our culture is in decline than it is of Jordan Peterson being some, you know, wild-eyed radical out there sowing discord and instead of, uh, you know, getting with the system and going along with it. So check it out. It's in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Again, this is the article from RT. What makes you think you won't be a tyrant? By the way, one of the most important distinctions that we can make is the one between reform and freedom. I see a lot of people get involved politically and and because they want to reform things. I want to fix things. I'm going to work within the party and I'm going to make things happen. And it's not just the Dems and Republicans. I see this in, in virtually any political party. If we can just reform this, if we can get the right people in office, we can get these reforms in place and we can bring back, you know, whatever it is. I've got a great article here from Jacob Hornberger that spells out the difference between reform and freedom and makes the case for freedom as opposed to a more comfortable version of serfdom, which is actually what reform tends to enable. Jacob Hornberger says, When new libertarians join the libertarian movement, they are inevitably hit with a fork in the road, one that all of us libertarians have confronted after discovering libertarianism. That fork is this. Should I become a libertarian reformer or should I become an advocate of liberty? Now, no matter how much the reform crowd might protest, reform is not freedom. That's because reform leave infringements on liberty intact and instead simply try to modify them. Freedom, on the other hand, necessarily involves the dismantling of infringements on liberty, not their reform. As each infringement is dismantled, the individual experiences the exhilaration of being a bit more free and ardently desires to dismantle the next one. The process continues until all infringements on liberty have been dismantled, in which case people experience what it's like to live the lives of free men and women. But he says, it's all that we libertarians, if all that we libertarians accomplish is reform of the welfare warfare state of way of life under which we live, well, then he says, uh, we will at best have improved our lives as serfs, but we will not have achieved our freedom. Now, I don't know if that strikes you as, hey, he's not being very fair or this is uncomfortable. If it's uncomfortable, that's okay. I want you to power through it and endure. You don't have to accept his idea, but I think it's worth considering. We're going to come back to it just the other side of our break. Please stay with us. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Once again, welcome back to the show. And once again, thanks for engaging in some wrong thinking. If this is your first time, I understand it can be a little bit uncomfortable. It, it is for all of us. The first time that we kind of stick our necks out. Sometimes we bump into the limits of our mental universe, but I thank you for enduring, for at least giving it a chance. I want to come back here to this article by Jacob Hornberger, Reform versus Freedom. 
And I think he's making a very essential distinction here. I know a lot of good people who want to get involved at some level, and I don't care what political party you want to get involved in. A lot of people uh, join a particular political movement under the guise of we've got to reform whatever it is that's going on. But he says if, if you're just going to reform, essentially what you're going to do is improve your life as a serf, but you will not achieve your freedom. Jacob Hornberger says, the analogy I like to use is slavery. He says, suppose we were able to use a time machine to transport today's reform-oriented libertarians back to Alabama in 1855. They would be calling for reforming slavery by enacting laws banning lashings or requiring shorter work hours or providing better food, housing, and health care. Now, those would be improvements in the plight of the slaves, and they undoubtedly would be appreciative, but it wouldn't be freedom. Freedom would would require the dismantling, not the reform of the structure of slavery. See, when he gets into talking about structure, now you know you're dealing with something of substance. Because it's the structure, it's the forms that matter. Not just the issues. Well, we are tired of people getting too many lashes and the food that they're serving is substandard and not nutritious. That does nothing to alter the, the essential structure that, allows slavery to happen in the first place. Back to Jacob Hornberger. He says the reform-oriented libertarian would respond, would respond, we have to be practical and pragmatic. We're not going to end slavery overnight. People would never accept that. If we call for the end of slavery, people will just tune us out. Newspaper editors won't publish our perspectives. People won't vote for us. We will end up with few supporters and be ineffective. Now, Hornberger says all that might be true, but the fact remains that the reform of slavery would not be freedom. If you want to attract more people to the cause of freedom, he says it is necessary to continue making the case for freedom, even if it appears that no one is interested. You ever had that feeling? (laughs) You're not alone. Moreover, Hornberger says there's no way to know how close we might be to arriving at a critical mass of people who could bring about a paradigm shift toward liberty in America. We might be a lot closer than we think. But he says the only way to enlarge the number of people who want freedom is by making the case for freedom. Suppose, for example, a libertarian is addressing an audience of 100 people who have never heard of libertarianism. The reform-oriented libertarian would say, we need to go slow here. We need to stick with reform just so that we don't scare anyone off. Let's just make the case for school vouchers and health savings accounts rather than the case for separating school and state and health care and state. Now, Hornberger says, let's assume that 25 people in the audience respond enthusiastically to the talk and become reform proponents. What difference does it make with respect to freedom? And the answer is none, because the public schooling system and the public health care system, both of which are severe infringements on are, are both severe infringements on liberty, would still be left intact. Achieving freedom requires a separation of school and state and a separation of health care and state, the same way our ancestors separated church and state. That necessarily means making the case for ending all governmental involvement in education and health care just as our ancestors did with religion. Now, Jacob says, let's assume that only two people in the audience are intrigued by the idea, decide to explore it, and become libertarians. 
That means we are that much closer to arriving at the critical mass of people needed to bring a societal paradigm shift to freedom. In fact, he says, imagine if our ancestors had not separated church and state. Today, we would be living in a religious mess that would be comparable to the mess we have in education and health care. And there would be libertarian reformers advocating reform of the public church system. But those reforms would not be freedom. Freedom would entail ending all governmental involvement in religion. Now, obviously, making the case for liberty is much more difficult than making the case for reform. Reform makes a person feel okay because his basic paradigm is not being shaken. Making the case for liberty makes a person think at a higher, more profound level, one that entails a dismantling of what he's accustomed to. But there is no other way. To achieve freedom, we need to attract more people to our cause who understand freedom and who want it. To accomplish that entails exposing people to the case for freedom. And if all we do is make the case for reform, he says, all we'll do is attract reformers to our cause. That might make our serfdom more palatable, but he says, it's not freedom. Now, I think it would be totally normal for a person to say, well, that sounds like a pretty hard line. Seems to me you're being pretty rigid and inflexible in your thinking. And I would ask you at that point just to consider, you know, compromise is a necessary thing in some areas of life. And there are places where compromise is absolutely appropriate. It's not a big deal. It's just part of how we have to do things, you know. What do we want for dinner? I'm sorry, but that question is answered usually through a process of compromise. Sometimes it's, you know, what does uh, mom and dad feel like fixing? Or are we going to go the easy route? Are we going to go out and order pizza? Whatever it may be, you know, but... People put in their input, I don't like, you know, this kind of food. You don't like that kind of food. Let's compromise and get this kind. My point is simply that compromise is not necessarily a bad thing, but there are some places where it's just not feasible. In the case of your natural inalienable rights, which government is called into existence to protect and to guarantee, you can't compromise. That's like being a tiny bit pregnant. You either are or you aren't. Government is either operating in the interest of protecting your rights or it's not. And reformers, unfortunately, play into the idea that, well, you know, we've got to wait until government gives us permission, you know, to to fix these things. And, you know, this is not to say that policies can't be adjusted. I've seen some really great things happen, particularly with the work of Libertas Institute in my home state of Utah. Tons of great shifts in public policy. And sometimes it comes slowly. You know, people want everything all at once. But the direction they are moving is always toward greater freedom, not just, well, let's, you know, do a little more reform here, a little more reform there. It's a tough system, and the system itself is very entrenched, and it does everything in its power to protect its hold on power. And sometimes you do have to learn skills to work within that system. I I can think, sadly, of a few examples of, you know, well-intentioned friends and, and, you know, commentators who've stepped up and just gone on the attack against lawmakers. And it may feel like they're justified because sometimes lawmakers are doing things that are horribly wrong. But when you come at them with this, you know, guerrilla-type domination attitude. You don't, hurt, you don't help your cause. You hurt your cause. 
and you put those uh, lawmakers on the defensive to where they're not going to listen to you. Now, granted, some of them may not be interested in listening in the first place. There are some, you know, pretty entrenched, you know, opportunists and power seekers who, you know, they're going to do what they're going to do. They answer to different interests than the people who elected them. But there are those who are very serious about uh, doing a good job of representing the people who elected them. They actually hold it as a sacred trust. And if you want to reach them, you're going to have to approach them as something other than an enemy that needs to be vanquished. You almost have to approach them as if they were a prize to be won. And that can be pretty tough, especially where emotions are involved and powers involved and taxation and, and other things. I realize this sounds counterintuitive, right? Because politics is all about using the language of war, you know? We have more options sometimes than we let ourselves think about. I'll have a link to Hornberger's article in the show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. So a few years ago, I had a co-worker who, well, he was really well informed on things like cryptocurrency. And I learned as much as I could from this guy. And in fact, I even dabbled in it a little bit. I think I put about $250 into a, a, new, uh, a new crypto release. And uh, I got nothing. So, you know, I mean, he's offered to refund me the $250. Haven't taken him up on it yet. But let's just say my first foray into cryptocurrency didn't go so well. Having said that, I'm sitting back and watching in awe as a cryptocurrency is uh, is finding its place and finding acceptance among so-called polite society. And when I saw this article from John Miltimore from the Foundation for Economic Education, Trevor Lawrence, football star, I think he was a first-round NFL draft pick, is taking his entire signing bonus in cryptocurrencies. And John Miltimore explains why he would do that. He says, Trevor Lawrence just lit another fire under cryptocurrencies. The former Clemson University standout quarterback, who's expected to be nabbed with the first overall pick by the Jacksonville Jaguars today, during or tonight rather, during the NFL draft in Cleveland, announced earlier this week he was diving into the cryptocurrencies craze. Sports Illustrated reported Lawrence's signing bonus will come in cryptocurrency, which will be deposited into his Blockfolio account in a variety of crypto coins, such as Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Doge. I hope I'm saying that right. Just how much cash are we talking about? Well, John Miltimore says, according to USA Today, Lawrence's signing bonus is expected to be in the ballpark of $22.5 million. All right, that's not exactly chump change. The announcement was part of a multi-year endorsement agreement Lawrence reached with the cryptocurrency investment app Blockfolio. Now, John Miltimore says it's not hard to figure out why Lawrence is opting for the crypto route. In May 2019, Panthers offensive tackle and Bitcoin trailblazer Russell Okung famously issued a blunt request to be paid in Bitcoin, a decentralized currency not subject to regulation by banks or the federal government. Okung's decision made him one of the highest paid players in the NFL, the result of Bitcoin's meteoric rise. When Okung made his demand, Bitcoin was trading at about $8,000. Today, 
The price is around $55,000. Now, the decision is by no means a a slam dunk. Some economists have warned that cryptos are simply a bubble waiting to pop, arguing they have no intrinsic value. Paul Krugman famously said in 2015 when Bitcoin was trading for roughly $300, Bitcoin really looks, looks like it really is a bubble in multiple senses. Certainly, there's not a reason to hold that currency. As John Miltimore points out, a lot has changed since Krugman's infamous and horrible prediction. And not just the price of Bitcoin, which is up about 18,500%. Hedge funds have piled on, including investment guru Kathy Wood, CEO of ARK Invest. Corporations are also getting in on the action, including Tesla, which now accepts Bitcoin as payment. And reportedly, re, and recently reported rather, a $100 million profit after selling a portion of its Bitcoin stake. But it's not just major corporations like Tesla accepting cryptos. As Fees Carry McDonald has explained, don't be surprised if your local Chinese restaurant or steakhouse is now accepting Bitcoin cash. In fact, surveys show that more than a third of small and medium-sized businesses in the U.S. accept cryptos as payment for goods and services. So, Lawrence's announcement, which was followed by Ethereum hitting an all-time high of $2,650, is just the latest example of a larger story, and that is that cryptocurrencies have gone mainstream. So why are they going bonkers? Well, John Miltimore writes, there's no question that cryptocurrencies are exploding, but the question is, why? And the answer isn't hard to find. Confidence in fiat money generally, and the U.S. dollar specifically, is waning. And no wonder. To stimulate the economy and fund voracious government spending, the Federal Reserve has been printing money at a frightening clip. Its balance sheet tipped $7 trillion in 2020. And all indications are they're not done yet. This unprecedented pumping has sparked inflation fears. Economist and former Harvard President Lawrence Summers recently observed, I think there is enormous risk we are running. He says, I think there's a real possibility that within the year, we are going to be dealing with the most serious, incipient inflation problem we have faced in the last 40 years. Now, Miltimore says the explosion of cryptocurrencies, the market recently broke the $2 trillion mark, is a sign that markets are hedging against inflation. It's a sign that many fear the government is pushing the dollar to its breaking point. And he says many will understandably find this frustrating, but it's also predictable. In his famous work, The Denationalization of Money, economist F.A. Hayek noted that one of the primary lessons of human history from ancient Rome to the 20th century is that governments debase currencies. Now, Hayek argued governments simply can't help themselves. Once lawmakers realize their control over money can serve not just as a medium of exchange, but as a source of power and ill-gotten wealth, they inevitably manipulate currency, currency rather, in ways that harm its value. Hayek wrote, Since the function of government in issuing money is no longer one of merely certifying the weight and fineness of a certain piece of metal, but instead involves a deliberate determination of the quantity of money to be issued, governments have become wholly inadequate for the task, and it can be said without qualifications, have incessantly and everywhere abused their trust to defraud the people. End quote. In fact, he concluded there was only one real solution. Hayek observed in a 1984 interview with James U. Blanchard III, he said, I don't believe we shall ever have good money again before we take the thing out of the hands of government. 
because we can't take it violently out of the hands of government. All we can do is, by some sly, roundabout way, introduce something that they can't stop. And John Miltimore says, well, we've found a peaceful way to do precisely what Hayek described. And people like Russell O'Kung, Trevor Lawrence, and countless others are smart enough to take advantage of it. Now, I'm talking to a lot of just common folks who are very much starting to pay attention to cryptocurrencies. And as with most things, you know, it's new, so, you know, there's a learning curve and people are nervous, myself included. We all want to make sure we're making the right choices. And nobody wants to make a mistake, right? You don't want to be that chump who invested $250 and came up empty-handed. Oh, wait, that's me. Okay, no, even so, I understood the risks. I went into it with the idea that, look, I'm going to put in money that I would be okay with walking away from, which is pretty much what I've done. But just because I had that one bad experience doesn't mean, therefore, you know, there's nothing legitimate to it. Obviously, there is. Now I'm just kind of weighing, okay, how do I get back into the game? Anyway, there's a great link here to John Miltimore's article. You'll find it in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Shifting gears. If I were to say, there's an awful lot of ignorance in the world, I'm really not trying to be arrogant. In fact, I'm trying to be realistic, and that requires admitting that um, I'm not immune to that ignorance as well. Well, as witnessed by, you know, my knowledge of cryptocurrency. But as to the question of what should we be doing about the ignorance in the world, got a great article here from Joachim Book. This is from the American Institute for Economic Research, The Ignorant World and What to Do About It. Man, he's got some great ideas. He says, a specter is haunting the Western world, the specter of a grossly mistaken understanding of the world. Listen to the examples he gives. British kids have nightmares about the climate. Half of French respondents think it's likely that climate change will cause the extinction of the human race. American teachers coddle students who have panic attacks when wildfires rage somewhere on the planet. Eco-anxiety has clearly gripped the Western world, but he says what's worse is that most people have a dismal outlook on all of humanity's progress, not just climate change. Now, his point here is because slow changes don't get noticed and because humans use mental shortcuts to understand the world, we end up with a grossly misinformed view of what is. The late Hans Rosling, the Swedish professor of international health that most of us know as the excited man on YouTube, the one who explains the progress of the world with bubbles and giant blocks, dedicated his life to dispelling these misperceptions. The Gapminder Foundation, now carries, that now carries on his legacy, writes, Our ignorance surveys have shown that the general public is misguided about many basic global facts. Reliable global statistics exist for nearly every aspect of global development. But these numbers are not transformed into popular understanding because using and teaching statistics is still too difficult. End quote. My wife's a math teacher, and she's a really good one. But I, only, I remember only one class that she took during her uh, higher education that really caused her grief. Like, she would come home and say, I really hate this class. I don't understand this. I am so sick of this class. That class was statistics. So I get what they're saying here. We've got to take a quick break. We're going to come back in just a moment. We'll continue Joaquin Book's article, The Ignorant World and What to Do About It. Also have a great piece from Kurt Mercadante. He was my guest earlier this week. 
He's got a great take on uh, being free in an unfree world. I think you're going to like it. Stick around. We'll be back right after these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. Listen, if you have a minute, please go to my website, thebrianhydeshow.com. In fact, if you want to go to today's show notes, these are the show notes for April 29th. You'll find a place down at the bottom where you can actually click on my sponsor links. You can go and visit these sponsors. Tell them thank you for making it possible for me to do what I do. Also, you can subscribe to the podcast and I'm just going to throw this out there as a possibility. If you find value in the information and the content that I share with you, I would ask you to consider becoming a regular supporter. Now, I'm not talking for a huge, I'm talking about a huge commitment here. You could do it for as little as a dollar a month. You could do it for five or ten dollars a month. That is entirely up to you. But I appreciate each and every person who uh, digs into their own pocket and very generously donates to help support what I do. I'm not exaggerating when I tell you I feel a sense of calling to to speak the truth as I best understand it, to do it in a way that can help open minds and open hearts to uh, the possibility that maybe there's there's more that we're not being told by some of the more mainstream sources, and maybe you and I just have a little more power to change the world in very positive ways than we're being led to believe. Okay, that said, let's get back to Joaquin Book's article the ignorant world and what to do about it. He says Gapminder, the Gapminder Foundation, routinely asks 12 questions, sometimes with a 13th question on global temperatures, which most people tend to get right. But they ask these questions about basic, uncontroversial changes in global development, multiple choice questions on things like demographic change, how many girls in poor countries finish primary school, and what's happened to extreme poverty in the last 20 years. Now, the results of these questions are terrible, but it's not a question of ignorance. If people genuinely didn't know, by chance alone, they'd pick the right answer at least a third of the time. This is the chimpanzee threshold. Instead, the average human gets 2.2 answers right. That's out of 12 or 13 answers. The results for some questions like global life expectancy, 50, 60, or 70 years, ought to scare us more than any dismal vision of climate change having more than doubled since 1900. The global improvements in the last 40 years seem to have passed most smart people by. Of students and faculty at top universities, do you realize less than one in five managed to get this right? Even Nobel laureates underperformed the chimps. The worst performing groups were Swedish trade unionists, only 10% got the answer right. Norwegian teachers, 7% correct. In one memorable lecture, Rosling animatedly exclaimed, What in the world are you teaching the kids? And he says, and Joaquin Book says, In that line lies much of the problem for our continued misinformation about the world. Media coverage inundates us with a constant flow of catastrophes from one part or the, of the world or the other, while overlooking the great non-events of the world. When super cyclones kill 128 people instead of the hundreds of thousands they used to or would have, We don't even hear about them. When hundreds of thousands of people are lifted out of extreme poverty a day, every day, well, that's no longer newsworthy. 
The result is Gapminder notes that people end up carrying around a sack of outdated facts that you got in school, including knowledge that was often outdated when acquired in school. Counteracting that requires information and an updated framework for thinking about the world. To embrace the notion that things gradually get better, not worse, as we solve more problems, invent better things, and bring more people into the global marketplace. The return of such an optimist mentality requires nothing more than accepting that facts are better than myths, especially for understanding the world. And here, Joaquin Book puts his foot down and says, Look, thou shalt not misinform. To say the world is getting better is not to be complacent about its problems. It's not to be Pollyanna-ish about the future or believe that from here the only way is up. It's to say that on net and over time, the world gets better. It's to say that progress is hard-earned, that it's a gradual process with deep structural and historical roots. That the small heavens we create in our own lives contribute to make the entire world slightly less bad than it was yesterday. I work for you doing what I'm good at, you work for me doing what you're good at, and inventors and entrepreneurs halfway around the world figure out ways to do things that make both of our lives better. Now, he also poses the question, what's the point of studying when the world is collapsing around us? That's a point many schoolchildren have raised, Greta Thunberg perhaps most prominently. The world is heading for an urgent climate disaster. Why should they study for a future they won't have? But he says one reason would be to learn that the world isn't collapsing. Things are getting better, even though the pandemic coverage and climate change alarmism seem to suggest otherwise. Disasters are quick and sudden. Progress is slow and hard won. We live longer, healthier, safer, better, and more fulfilling lives with better access to almost anything you can imagine. So far, he says, human ingenuity has outpaced anything that a hostile planet can throw at us or a declinist mentality has conjured up. So it's a counterintuitive notion and a difficult thing to wrap your head around, but the world can be both better and still be bad in many respects. But Joaquin Book says we do nobody any favors, least of all our children, by exaggerating one or forgetting how far we've become. I think there's a lot of truth to this, and a lot of it comes down to awareness and and the willingness to see how and where we're focusing our attention. Which brings me to the final commentary I want to share with you. This is from Kurt Mercadante. He published this on his blog. I have a link, by the way, in the show notes, and I would encourage you, if you haven't subscribed or if you haven't visited his blog, you really should do so. Kurt's got a great message. The message here is free in an unfree world, and he starts with a quote from Albert Camus. The only way to deal with an unfree world is to become so absolutely free that your very existence is an act of rebellion. I've loved that quote for a long time. I didn't realize it was Albert Camus who said that. Kurt Mercadante says that quote is one which I try to live up to as much as possible, especially given the wave of authoritarianism that has swept the country and much of the globe during the last year. Now, he says, when I say authoritarianism, I don't mean things just like government-imposed lockdowns and proposed vaccine passports. He says, I mean the authoritarian nature of wokeism and the anger porn that's come to embody much of our media and national discourse. Busybodies who feel that instead of taking accountability for their own lives have decided it's easier and more effective simply to criticize, mock, marginalize, cancel, and deplatform those with whom they don't agree. And if that's you, he says, more power to you. But he says, my family and I have chosen a different way. So I, I've got to look at the date on here. Yep. Today is his birthday. 
He says he's celebrating his 46th rotation around the sun. He marks the occasion as we're eight months into his family's freedom travel adventure, currently in Austin, Texas, preparing to head west to the desert and up into the mountains. He says it would be easy for me to focus on the noise of an angry society, for me to feel that all is doomed, to join in the anger and anxiety and judgment of those with whom I disagree, to get worked up over the health habits or lack thereof of my fellow Americans during a pandemic. But Kurt Mercadante says, I, along with my family, have chosen a different way. He says, it's been a little more than three years since I closed my seven-figure PR and ad agency overnight and began building a life of freedom and fulfillment. Now, he says, at 46 years old, I'm in the best shape of my life, more prosperous than ever, with stronger relationships than I've ever had with my wife and kids. He says, during the past year, we've refused to have a lockdown mentality, choosing love over fear and freedom over conformity. Whereas a short four years ago, he says, I was 60 pounds heavier and subject to horrible anxiety attacks. Today, I'm stress-free, pain-free, and inflammation-free. Kurt says, for a long time, I've had this nagging feeling that I'm meant to save the world. And he says, trust me, during the past year, that feeling has become strong. But he says, what I've realized is, or what I've realized, however, is the best thing I can do to save the world is to be the best me that I can be. The best husband, the best father, the best coach and consultant, the best author and writer, the best trainer to the companies who hire me. I can continue to provide an example of freedom in an unfree world. I love that philosophy. Now, he says, some people will see that as an act of rebellion. Some will continue to claim that because we homeschool or because we travel during a pandemic or because we refuse to watch the news or join a political tribe or conform to the norms, that we are selfish. And Kurt's answer is, so be it. For them, our lives are an act of rebellion. For others, he says, our lives can serve as some illumination to those who feel in their soul that there is another way who know the fear that leads to apathy and conformity is not the best way to live their lives. And so he says, as I mark my 46th birthday, I am fulfilled. I am free in an increasingly unfree world. Isn't that a better approach? I just, I absolutely love the line. I can continue to provide an example of freedom in an unfree world. I think that is, uh, that's, a truth that every one of us should consider adopting in our own way. And by the way, you don't have to do it exactly the way that Kurt Mercadante is doing it. You don't have to do it the way that I'm doing it. That's the beauty. You can make your mark in your own way. In fact, I would go so far as to say you have your own little personal mission that only you can fulfill and talents that only you possess. The question is, what's stopping you from taking those first steps to make it a reality. This is The Brian Hyde Show.